Some years ago, Amy and I uh, had to sell our home. And of course, there are a million hoops you have to jump through, right? And one of those million hoops was a radon test. And uh, you get a little test in the mail like this, or you have some company do it. But what they're looking for is something that, to our normal senses, is invisible. So you have to have a special test. Radon, invisible, you can't smell it, you can't see it, but it's the second leading cause of lung cancer in our country after cancer. Think of that. In fact, the EPA says as many as 20,000 people die from lung cancer caused by radon each year. And they also say that nearly one in three homes had higher levels of radon exposure than the, than the level they said is safe. Now, here's the thing. Radon can't be smelled can't be seen. It's odorless, colorless. It's a silent killer, hence a special need to detect it. There is a silent killer among us as well, a sin that we may not often see in our own life and one that most people would not confess to. But as one writer, Henley Farley, put it, if we did confess this sin every time it occurred, we would scarce be off our knees. It is a sin of envy, of envy. It is pervasive, it is hard to see, and it's deadly. We need to talk about it. And we're going to, through Psalm 73, the story, testimony of a man who almost lost himself spiritually because of envy and the way that he dealt with this, uh, with God's grace, can be instructive to us as well. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would guide my, my words on this. Help me to just forget anything that's not right or that's not helpful. But those things that would be helpful, would you not only help me to remember and to explain clearly, but help us to be able to receive them, not just as intellectual truths that we agree with, but as your Spirit speaking to us about things in our soul that we need to eliminate with your grace. Thank you, Father. Amen. So this week, I'm starting a new series on the seven deadly sins and the sevenfold grace of God as well. Because uh, as I was thinking through, praying through the last week or two, all right, God, what would actually be helpful to, to us right now? This came back to my mind uh, several times. Because there are things within us uh, that kill us spiritually that we need some help and direction from God's Word upon. The church, for many, many centuries, longer than the millennium, has listed seven of these as the seven deadly sins. Seven sins that are especially uh, deadly to our spiritual life before God. And one of those is envy. So we're going to look at this particular sin, but we're not just going to talk about the sin. We're not just going to say, okay, here's a bad sin, avoid it. We're going to talk about how the grace of God comes to us through the cross in dealing with this particular sin. Psalm 73 is the story of a man who was dealing with this particular sin of envy. And he begins writing, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
here's a man who's saying, you know, spiritually, I almost lost it all. Why? Because I envied. Now here he's talking in particular about envying the wicked, but I don't see any reason why these same principles don't apply to envy, any of our envying, and we'll look at some other scriptures as well. So what is it about envy that is so deadly to our soul? Well, here's the first thing. It distorts our thinking. It distorts our thinking. And, uh, and this is something that will blind us and then hurt us spiritually. I love how Susanna Wesley, what a, what a great model of the, of the Christian walk, by the way, Susanna Wesley, um, and how she defines sin to her young son, John. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs your tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, and takes the relish off of spiritual things, that to you is sin. Not a bad definition. Not a theological definition, but a very good practical definition. And we're going to talk about kind of how envy does all these in a way, but especially here, the first one, weakens our reason, distorts our thinking. How does it do that? Well, you see it here. How does he, look how he describes the, the wicked in verses 4 through 12, the ones he's envying. See if this strikes you as, as an objective, true picture of reality about them. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff, and they speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of earth. And therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now, does that sound like a true assessment of evil people to you? Either in your own life or what you see in the scriptures? Doesn't scripture say that the way of the transgressor is hard? And really, don't we objectively know that every life has its struggles, some of them obvious, some of them more secret? But envy clouds our thinking reducing our thoughts to nothing more than animal thinking. In verse 21, he says this, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. That's what envy does. It blinds us, and so it distorts our thoughts. Here's the second thing, though. It chokes out our joy. Did you see the lack of contentment and joy that runs throughout this whole passage? I, I love this this proverb here, Proverbs 14.30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Think of a person with bone cancer, and, and their bones get progressively weaker each day, and eventually it's going to take their very life, and that envy is like that, rotting the bones from the inside. Like a hidden cancer, it weakens the joy of our life and our contentment that God desires us to have. And we lose this joy and contentment, not because of anything necessarily that's happened to us, but because of something good that someone else has. Hmm. Oscar Wilde tells a very powerful story. The devil was once crossing the Libyan uh, desert. 
And they came upon a spot where a small number of whole of fiends were tormenting a holy hermit. And the sainted hermit easily shook off their evil suggestions, and the devil watched their failure. Then he stepped forward to give them a lesson. What you are doing is too crude, he said. Permit me for one moment. And with that, he whispered to the holy man, Your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. And a scowl of malignant evil at once clouded the serene face of the hermit. That, said the devil to his imps, is the sort of thing I would recommend. And that story rings true, because we can be losing our joy simply because of what someone else has that we don't. And then, as you see all the way through this, it draws us away from God. The psalmist says, if I had spoken out like this, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Verse 2 says, my feet had almost slipped. And you know what I love about Asaph? He's probably more honest than you and I are about this. We, we may think and wonder about it subconsciously, but he lays it all out. I fell away from God because I was envying. You know, I don't think any of these seven deadly sins we're going to be completely free from. I imagine that there are some of these seven that we're going to say, okay, yeah, I have a real problem with that one. Uh, but none of these are we going to be able to say, you know, I have zero issues with this. But are we going to be honest about it? Are we going to say, you know what? I'm having a spiritual problem because I am envying someone else. That's really hard to do. It's very humbling, right? And yet we also know that admitting it is really the first step in trying to move beyond that. So let's talk about that here just for a second. Before we do, one other thought here about the dangers of envy. If we still don't think this is bad enough, we're told in Mark, and there's a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, that when Pilate had Jesus there before him and he was going to offer up the, you know, the choice to the crowd, it was Passover time. It was customary to release one prisoner. He says, do you want me to release Barabbas or, or this Jesus guy? And it says this, for he perceived or he knew that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up to him. Wow. These were men who had given their lives to try to be godly. These were men who knew the Old Testament scriptures at least better than any of us could claim to do. And yet this sin within them, rotted like a cancer at the bone, stole not only their joy, but led them to this greatest of sins. Envy will do that. It's a cancer. It's an odorless gas destroying us, killing us from the inside. All right. How do we get beyond that? How do we move beyond envy? Well, first step, admit it, as Asaph does, and ask for help. Everything is more deadly when hidden, right? And, and we can do this because we know the gospel, that we are sinners. We're all bozos on this bus, right? You are a sinner. 
You're a big, fat sinner, and so am I. But here's the thing, and the good news, that we are not saved because of our lack of sin. We're not loved because we've grown beyond sin. Our value is not dependent upon being a good person. Let's just be honest about it, at least to ourselves. Better even if we're honest with someone else, a spiritual, someone came with spiritual counsel, our spouse, a counselor, pastor, whatever. Let's let Asaph be our model. He is honest about it, admitted it, and that's the first step. Um, great verse here from the epistle of James. But he gives more grace. I love that. I love that Paul says in Romans, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Sin's not going to have the last word here, right? And not in God's universe, it's not. And God gives grace in our areas of sinfulness. And he gives grace in this area of sinfulness. He gives help that we're just going to talk about here in a second. But the first step is admitting that we need it. We have to go to the doctor before we get the medicine. And uh, James says, he gives more grace. But therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, those who are willing to admit. Um, second thing, <laughs> practice gratitude. Practice gratitude. Gratitude is the ballast, as we suggested a few weeks ago, to so many of the different temptations in our soul. Uh, I love the story K. Arthur wrote some years ago. K. Arthur, I think she's still alive, but uh, she is an author and a writer, does a Christian uh, speaking circuit, you know, and, and she's, I, I like what she does a lot. I like her writings quite a bit. But anyway, she was relating a time where she was down and depressed and thinking about all the things in her life that were wrong and causing her stress. And she was sitting on a plane uh, that was headed from Atlanta to Cleveland. So it was heading south to north. And she says, as a plane rose in the sky, I looked off and I saw to my east these threatening storm clouds. It was all dark and dreary and, and, and ugly. And I looked out the windows to the west side of the plane and I could see from there this beautiful, radiant sunset. And she said, it's almost like the Spirit of God spoke to me right there in that and said, Kay, in this life, you are going to have things that are ugly and that seem threatening and that are difficult and that you don't like. And you're also going to have things that are beautiful and joyful and glorious. And you have the choice which windows you look out of. Either way, you're going to Cleveland. That's true, isn't it? We have the choice of focusing on the good things that God has done for us. There's always things to praise God for. Or to focus on the things that we wish were different. The wish, things that other people have that we don't have. Um, so, Look to admit, admit it in, ask for help, practice gratitude. And then here's the third thing. Remember the big picture. Remember the big picture. I like 
this movement in this psalm. It's very interesting. He, he talks about all this, this, this psalm writer, his name is Asaph. It says, if I had spoken out like this, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. What's he talking about? Well, he's, he's trying to follow God. He knows he's not perfect. He's trying to follow God. But he is facing torment and trouble all day long. And he's looking at these other people who don't care a thing about God. Everything's going great for them. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You ever had this dream that you just hated? You know, you, you're feeling threatened or something was going terribly wrong. And you wake up in the morning and you're like, ah, it was only a dream. All right, you know, put that behind me now. It's just, that's how God is going to view the wicked. They'll be like a dream that's here for a while and then it's forgotten. But yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish, for you destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. You know what he's doing? He's pulling himself back from the what he sees about his own problems versus what he sees as the blessing of the evil. He says, but this is a God who is eternal. There is a bigger picture here than what I see right now. And we see that, you know, so many ways in our own life, right? We can see the things that we used to care about and now we don't care about it at all because we have changed. We see the, the larger picture. I heard a story of a man who um, he found, or he was out fishing. He was an older man. He was like 76 years old. He enjoyed fishing. And one day as he's out in the boat, he hears a voice and uh, says, pick me up, pick me up. And he looks and there's a little frog talking to him from the water. So he picks it up and the frog says, if you... If you kiss me, I will turn into the most beautiful woman in the world and I will be your bride and everyone will envy you because you have this beautiful woman as your bride. And the guy looks at the frog for a minute and takes it and puts it in his pocket. And the frog says, wait, wait, wait. Didn't I tell you if you kiss me, you'd become the most, I'd become the most beautiful woman in the world, be your bride? Guess says, well, yeah. But at my age, I'd kind of rather have a talking frog, you know? I'll get and go. The things that seem to matter so much at a certain stage of our existence, in the larger picture, they lose. They lose so much. We remember the big picture. Now, here's the last point. The last point is this. Keep your eyes on the cross. And this is probably the most gracious thing that we can do, the, most, the thing most filled with God's grace is to keep our eyes on the cross. 
And here we can even go beyond our brother Asaph. We can learn from him, but go beyond him because he lived before the cross and we live on this side of it. So we can see much more what it means when he says that my flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that afterwards you will take me into glory. We can see more clearly than he even that there is a bigger picture here than the ups and downs of the things of our life and how things are going well or not well at the moment because we are eternal beings and we have an eternal destiny with God, right? And we can look at the cross and we see that big picture. But more than that, more than that, the cross and understanding and appropriating the, the, the vision of that cross is the key to receiving this grace and really all the grace for the different sins we're going to talk about. It's the cross. It's looking to that again and again. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first things first. How does the cross, looking at the cross, solve or take away some of this envy problem that we have? Remember who crucified Jesus? It wasn't the poor folk. It wasn't the harlots. It wasn't the drunkards. It was the most successful people of the Jewish culture and the Roman culture together. It was the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the temple elite. And it was the Romans, the powerful Romans, Pilate and Herod, Herod probably being the second richest man in the empire at that time after the emperor himself. It was the powerful, it was the rich. And even in, in, a, in the book of James, this is, don't you see, he says, you guys play favorites with the rich and the powerful. They're the ones who are hurting you, persecuting you. Why, why would you want to be that? Now, I believe if God gives us blessing, we should receive it and use that. This, not to denigrate whatever success God gives us. But when we look at the cross, we're reminded that those things in the end don't matter and they have their own danger to them. That's one thing that happens when we look at the cross. But the second thing that happens when we look at the cross is this. We see how deeply we are loved. We see how deeply we are loved apart from the things that we're envious about. I, um, I don't know if I'm right on this. I made a little simple little chart, the anatomy of envy. As I was thinking through, all right, what, what kind of goes into our envy? Knowing that all these kind of sins flow into each other a little bit. I don't know if I'm right about this, but what came to my mind, and see if you agree with me, is that really it's kind of a combination mainly of three different things. One is pride. That other person has something that we think we deserve to have. Second is greed. They have something we want to have. It's a focus on what they have compared to what I don't have. And then third is the feelings of inferiority. Now, here's what I mean. At least in my life, a lot of the areas where I'm feeling the most envy are the areas where I feel like a failure or I don't feel very good about myself because someone else has so much greater gifts. Someone else has so much greater success. Someone else has this and this and this, and I don't. And for me, at least, a lot of that, not all of that, but all three are in play here, um, comes down to this 
feeling that I'm not good enough unless I also get these things or achieve these things. Maybe sometimes the, uh, you know, the relative uh, amount of these things can vary a little bit. I suppose for each one of us, it's a little bit different. But if I'm right, that these three things are part of the anatomy of envy, then we see how clearly the cross speaks against them. Greed. Because the cross shows us that the heart of what life is about is self-giving love, like Jesus has, not self-seeking gain and greed. That the heart of the of the of the gospel, the heart of God, therefore the heart really of this creation as it should be, is not pride lifting myself up, but as Jesus who humbled himself and made himself as a servant, even to the point of death. We also see that in the areas of inferiority. Because the cross is the ultimate leveler. The The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And I'm going to end with these words from Robert C. Roberts. And I found this quote. I haven't read this book, but it's an interesting title, isn't it? Spirituality and Human Emotion. He writes, The Christian self-understanding is that he, that she is precious before God. However much a sinner, however much a failure or success she may be by the standards of worldly comparison, and that every other person she meets has the same status. The vision is not only one that levels every distinction by which ego seeks glory, This vision, when appropriated, is also the ultimate ground of self-confidence. For the message is that God loves me for myself, not something I have achieved, not for my beauty or intelligence or righteousness or any other qualification, but simply in a way that a good mother loves the fruit of her womb. If I can get that into my head or better into my heart, then I won't be grasping desperately for self-esteem at the expense of others and cutting myself off from my proper destiny, which is spiritual fellowship with them. Wow, those are some good words. Looking at the cross shows us that the standards of success and failures of this world mean absolutely zilch in the long run, in the big picture. And they remind me that I am deeply loved whether I have those things that I think I wish I had or that other people have that I want, I am deeply loved by the eternal God. That's enough. More than enough. I said I was going to end with that. I lied. I'm going to end with Sonnet 29 from William Shakespeare. As he writes about his own battle with envy, envying of other people's skill. Can you imagine Shakespeare envying someone else's skill? Uh, Tells us something about how irrational envy can become. He writes this, Sonnet 29. When in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me more like one rich in hope, featured like him, or like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I enjoy, most enjoy contented least. Yet, in these thoughts, 
myself almost despising. Happily, he writes to this woman, I think on thee. And then my state, like to the lark, at break of day arising, from sullen earth sings hymns at heaven's gates. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. Now, if he could write that about the love of a good woman, how much more can we say that about the love of the eternal creator God? Father, help us. Help us. We see so clearly our own deficiencies. We see so clearly the things that we wish we had that we don't. For some of us, it might be a spouse, or it might be a spouse that is different in the way they interact with us than the one that we have. For some of us, it might be for, we might wish we had different and better talents and skills. For some of us, it might be we wish we had the health that someone else seems to have so much of. Or we wish we had the success. We wish we had the money. We wish we had the opportunities, the youth. There are a million more things, God. Would you help us? Father, would you help us, like Asaph, to turn our thoughts away from comparing ourselves, especially in this irrational way, to what we think the good of other people have, and instead remembering the big picture. That yes, we will have ups and downs in this life, but in the end, we all get incredibly more than we deserve because we get grace. And not just for the 70, 80, 90, 100 years of this life, but for eternity. We are recipients of the mighty grace and the deep, deep love of God. And that is enough. So help us to keep our vision upon you, not ourselves, not others, but on you and your incredible love for us. Thank you, Father. Amen.